Welcome to my podcast. This is David Suisa. Today, we're delighted to have with us Norm Eisen, who will be speaking at the AJU at the Wizen Center on his new book called The Last Palace in conversation with Michael Berenbaum. Welcome, Norman. Thank you, David. So excited to be with you. Now, Mr. Eisen served as U.S. Ambassador to Czechoslovakia from January 2011 until August 2014. And one of the most amazing experiences that he had is after seeing swastikas all over his fabulous embassy home, he decided to write this book, which almost is an epic history of Europe in the 20th century. So I thought we might start, Mr. Eisen, by talking about Europe. And it's obviously in the news because of the threats to the European Union and all these new movements of nationalism, and there's so much, and then Brexit. Is, is Europe going to get through this period of what looks like a real challenge to its goal of, of union? I think they're going to get through it. I really do. Uh, because, you know, the amazing thing is there are some countries that have gone their own way. Hungary, now Poland is Poland. doing some some of that. Definitely England. When you England. Um, but I, I, so far the center is holding. The mm-hmm. core is holding in the EU. Everybody was worried that Le Pen was going to defeat Macron mm-hmm. for the French presidency. I think Jews were worried for other reasons because the Le Pen family, historically, uh, Marine Le Pen's father has been a Holocaust denier mm-hmm. and uh, anti-Semitic in my view. Well, guess what? Macron won. The French people decisively rejected Marine Le Pen. And uh, for the most part, we're seeing a similar thing. And I think it's going to be choppy waters, but I think Europe's going to get through it okay. A part of the choppy waters, uh, the situation with migrants, do you think there's a point where they might have gone too far? Like I'm thinking of uh, Angela Merkel especially. Uh, Do you think there's a point where they go too far? Because, you know, the the idea of immigration is you want to create a situation of assimilation and integration. And that's what creates a society that's more cohesive, and we're not seeing that right now. Is that a looming threat? I, I think, it, look, I, I'm the child of immigrants to the United States. Uh, my father came here in 1940, escaping Europe uh, as an undocumented migrant and became a citizen through serving in the, in the U.S. Army in World War II. Uh, so uh, I'm very sympathetic to migrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... And I admire what Angela Merkel did in welcoming the migrants. I think that uh, politically uh, there were some ways that she could have achieved her good purpose uh, but uh, perhaps been a little more attuned as well uh, to the um, political realities. That's important because she's paid a high political price for it. And uh, we, you know, you, so it's all a question of striking the right balance. Correct. But I can say, and I said this to their face when I was just in Prague to the Czech space, that the current prime minister who rejects all migration, he doesn't want anybody, and extreme. he's open and he attacks, that's far, far worse than some uh, political miscalibrations. I mean, the irony is, you know, in my parents' generation, because, you know, we come from Morocco, and the, the Moroccans who moved to France, they integrated a lot better than their children. And what you see now even in France is, you know, some of the threat with anti-Semitism comes from their inability to, like, fully integrate, whereas their parents were, like, proud to be French. 
And now there's a certain a Muslim pride in a way, I think that connects with some of the anti-Zionism, you know, strands. And it's uh, it's not pleasant, Norm. I mean, in all honesty, I have cousins in in Paris now who are afraid to put on their yarmulke on the way to shul. And the 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 the, the, the leaders of the country are so protective of the Jews. And I've, I've interviewed some of them. They're really supportive. And what's scary is that despite that support, there's some sense of danger. Uh, when I was uh, ambassador, I, you can't miss the fact that um, there, there is uh, anti-Semitism that comes from some of the extreme. It's really the radical fringes. Correct, uh, in the mosques. Of, of the, it's yeah. a small number. Right. The Saudis uh, uh, who... <clears throat> Now appear to have murdered uh, a, 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 an American journalist. Correct. Uh, there's this scandal. The Saudis exported some of their most extreme uh, Salafist uh, preachers, subsidized them in Europe. So we're talking about, I believe, a tiny minority. The vast mm. majority, I got to to know them. The vast majority of European uh, Muslims are law-abiding. There's a terrible irony to the fact that they themselves are the victims of a lot of discrimination. And in the extreme fringes of the Muslim community, there's a lot of anti-Semitism that's emanating from the community. So, uh, uh, But we have to be honest about that and try to deal with that extremism, just as we do here in the United States. We're much better at it in the United States because people of all faiths can really assimilate. They're fully welcome in America. If yeah. you're, you know, it's a, it, it is, it is a true meritocracy, the likes of which I have not seen anywhere else in the world in all my travels. There's no country like this one. You, it doesn't matter ultimately if you're successful. The problem is if you're average, if you're different and you're just average, um, there are barriers. Mm -hmm. People do look at you, but for someone who's truly successful, the most talented. Uh, we have a very rigorous meritocracy, and uh, you you can go all the way to the to the very top of the heap, no matter what your religion, what you look like, what you sound like. Why have the Jews been so successful in this country? Um, a combination uh, of uh, factors. I think that uh, the Jews arrived en masse in America at a time of a century of great economic boom. Um, uh, when America came to dominate the world economy, so a rising tide lifted all boats here. The Jews disproportionately took advantage of that. I think there's a strong cultural predisposition that goes back millennia towards education, and that's baked into our community. And education, this meritocracy that we're talking about, education is the escalator up in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, so our emphasis as a culture uh, on education. Um, and, you know, we have a very rich ancient culture that served well to ground us, to anchor us, to launch us into the American mainstream. And there was a sense of gratitude to, that we, we have a country where I can go into a court of law and they'll treat me the same regardless of who I am. It, that fact alone. God bless. You know, in my parents in Morocco, you know, there's no deed of sale that could have been honored with the, with the house. I mean, we had no rights. Uh, whereas all of a sudden we come to a country and you come to a court of law and your contract is honored regardless of who you are. That one little difference for me was like fundamental to the Jewish story in America. Well, and you hit on a very important 
safeguard that the Jews have enjoyed in America, uh, the rule of law. That we, there is a strong, it is American courts, American justice is the envy of the world, and uh, that's another feature. And then I'll give you one last one that I think. The Jews, the European Jews in particular, but also the Jews of the Muslim world were, were, were in a sense, uh, there was a lot of talent that was pent up because of just what you described. Mm-hmm. The lack of full emancipation, you couldn't fully participate. So it was like a dam that was wow. of genius nice. that was pent up and nice. it exploded out. That is a fantastic metaphor. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, it would have happened in Europe if they hadn't discriminated against us. Yeah. They were so stupid, they drove out. And it all exploded of in America. And look at the Nazis. Yeah. They drove out most of their Jewish Geniuses. scientists, the same yeah. ones who came here, helped America develop the atom bomb that allowed us to. The writers, the, the authors, the the Heschels, the yes, those writers and authors disproportionately came to Los Angeles. Of course, L.A. became a great mecca of uh, of European Jewish uh, genius. Whether it's the Thomas Manns or the the Billy Wilders, they all came here. They did, and they built uh, delis. So they can have meetings for Hollywood. That was another thing people don't realize about L.A. is how many delis we have because of old Hollywood. They came from New York, and they wanted delis to have their all their meetings in. But it's a great metaphor, the fact that our potential just exploded in the country, and it's a testament to how amazing this country is, Norm. I mean, Love it. America is one of the great chapters in Jewish history. And, and it's ironic that the two great uh, dreams of the past 2,000 years came together in the same century. The dream of finding a place that would take us in as equals and the dream of returning home to Zion happened in the same century. That's exactly the theme of the middle part of the book because you had this explosion of democracy post-1945. And one of the great, and uh, ultimately democracy was secured across all of Western Europe. The establishment of the state of Israel which uh, I write about a little bit, the miracle as my mother was deciding whether to escape communism, that there was an ambassador from a Jewish state mm-hmm. who was sent to Czechoslovakia. They were so amazed, they couldn't believe it. That's it was true. like Mashiach. It was like <laughs> the advent of the Messiah, Lahavdil, not compare a secular ambassador, but they were so amazed, like a malach, that's better, like an angel. Uh, this the, the past couple came. of years, by the way, the Mashiach was Nikki Haley, and we always thought Mashiach was going to be a man. So, uh, yes, yeah. I have a different <laughs> I have a different view on Nikki Haley. I wrote in the Washington Post this week about some of the ethics and legal issues that she's uh, oh, right. that she's encountered. At any rate, the uh, creation of the state of Israel and the Jewish participation in America. Jewish ambassador who was sent from America to Prague after World War II, who I write about, who saved this house. You're right. Those are two high points uh, in uh, the uh, entire history of the Jews. I mean, this has been an amazing, an amazing Jewish century, and I'm the beneficiary of that. So am I. So am I. You know, I, I tell my friends, you know, I, I, I wrote a really critical article on the leader of my country, and I got home, and nobody showed up from the police office <laughs> saying, Mr. Suisa, did you write this? Please follow us to the <laughs> precinct. And it would have happened in Morocco, where I grew up. So these little things I don't uh, take for granted. I, had a, I wonder if there's another aspect to it as well, in terms of the Jewish success in America, a sense of responsibility. 
a sense of uh, wanting to give back as a way of expressing our gratitude. I had this amazing meeting this morning, Norm, where somebody just threw out the coolest idea I've heard in a long time. And it came from Viktor Frankl. Oh, yes, man's inhumanity to man. Yeah, and, uh, and he said in the same way that on the East Coast we have a Statue of Liberty, he said on the West Coast we ought to have a Statue of Responsibility. <laughs> and I said to this person that I was meeting with, I said, this is one of the best ideas I've heard in a long time. One day some billionaire is going to hear this idea and going to build a Statue of Responsibility because the idea of liberty and responsibility feel like they go together. And I think that's part of the success of democracy is that it's not just about the rights and the rights that I have, but it's also about the responsibilities. My all-time favorite line was from John F. Kennedy. You know, ask what you can do for, for your country. And it seems that that's been withering away gently here in America. Well, it's an important part of the culture, the values, the virtues that these generations of migrant Jews, who, and I'm the child of two of them, uh, who came right here to Los Angeles. Uh, uh, it is an important virtue that they brought with them. It's important in Jewish culture, the idea of hakarat hatov, mm -hmm. of, of saying thank you, of being grateful. Uh, one of the interesting things for me, as you see... Uh, with each successive generation of the incredible American Jewish community, there are some who assimilate, who fade away, who drift off out of the community. Uh, and uh, whether those virtues will be maintained mm -hmm. or not. You know, that Jewish identity hangs on, David. It's very yeah. slow to vanish. There's something very tenacious. Well, you put your finger on the, the ultimate paradox for me of the Jewish experience in America because in isolation, theoretically, the idea of integrating is so healthy for a democracy. Democracy lives or dies on the ability to integrate different groups that rally around shared ideals and shared values. And if you just stay in your ghetto... You know, that's not healthy for democracy. We, we, we depend on integration, right? And then at the same time, if you do too much of that, then you lose the uniqueness of your identity that's been 5,000 years old. And that wouldn't be good either that we would lose it. So that balance has always been the Jewish challenge here, hasn't it? Uh, well, uh, as the barriers fell uh, around the Jewish ghetto here, um, but from the beginning, you know, you had the first generation of those Jewish immigrant kids who were already going to Harvard. It's very similar to the Asian experience today. And you went to Harvard. <laughs> I went. I am a graduate of a Harvard Law School. And I school. can tell all my all my listeners that while you went to Harvard, you became buddies with somebody who was in the same law school. And I think his first name was Barack, and his last name was Obama. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Were you did, were you buddies with him? Uh, I was friends with President Obama. I met him in 1988. I had gone to Harvard Law School from uh, working uh, here in Los Angeles uh, at the ADL. Uh, I was hired by the legendary Harvey Schechter, and then I worked for David Lehrer, who sure. I'm still friends with. Uh, and, um, and then I went off to law school. Uh, so I was a, had been a civil rights organizer, and I was friends with a guy who was a union organizer, and he <laughs> said, hey, let me introduce you to this community organizer. Oh, so wow. we were three organizers. That's how I met Barack Obama. I love it. Did you hang out a lot? Did you have, like, do you remember some of the conversations that you used to have with him? Uh, were you in the same year? 
Uh, we were the same year. We were the same year. And, you know, it's uh, law school is uh, it's not like a university. It's a relatively small class. So we saw each other a lot. Um, he's a wonderful, uh, wonderful guy. Uh, occasionally, uh, we you know, you just run into each other. We'd be in a basketball to- game together. I'd mm-hmm. go over to a friend's house. He'd be there watching a game. Uh, the president— Was he always so decent, uh, gentlemanly— Vibe, because that's how he strikes me for eight years. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna tell unflappable. You, I'm gonna tell you something. Uh, at uh, Harvard Law School is a very competitive place, right? So you're always, you know, there's a certain amount of jockeying that's always going on. And I tell people when they ask me, uh, you wanted to hate the guy, but you just couldn't do it because <laughs> he was so nice. Uh, you know, he was so talented, so smart, uh, such a good athlete. Uh, Good-looking guy, you wanted to hate him, but you just couldn't do it. So yes, he's very—he is very unchanged from the man I met in 1988 mm-hmm. uh, uh, to a fault. You know, he doesn't—he's really not that. He still likes his old friends best. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, has the same personality, very level-headed. It's a very good disposition for a president not to get carried away with the power of the office, and and that is him. It really is him. If I had to have one word to describe him, it's like unflappable. It's unbelievable the crises that he went through, and and the opposition, and the and just the drama, and the drama, and the drama. And you were there. You lived it. When he brought me oh into God. the White House, with just him. the very beginning was the financial <laughs> crisis and two wars that were not going all that great. Now, were you Iraq there? Iraq the and very beginning, you were there. I was on the first bus from the swearing-in. Oh my! We took the keys from the Bush administration. And uh, my job, I had a dual job. I was the ethics czar. My mother loved to say to people, it is the only time a czar has ever been good for the (laughs) Jews. So I had the compliance portfolio. I was the chief political lawyer. And then I was working on the financial regulatory reform, too. I had experience with that. Um, So so I really got to uh, see how he handled himself in these crises. And you're absolutely right. He is a cool guy. He has that Hawaii cool. They're even cooler than us Los Angelinos, those Hawaiians. They outchill us. They totally do, and he has that quality. Um, And you were in meetings with him from the very beginning. Yeah. So you would see, I mean, the country was in such a state of crisis. Yes. Especially the financial crisis. What were those meetings like? Well, he he, uh, would listen The the. Overwhelming. I have pictures of some of them. when I left the White House. The president's photographer, Pete Souza, gave me some pictures. And there were some. There's this thing in the White House. They take pictures of these meetings and then they put them up on the walls. And when you leave, they give you a few to take Amazing with you. Amazing images from Souza. Beautiful. Seen he's a he's a wonderful. Uh, he wonderful catches these moments. He was very nice to me. I got a hold of my book, and he plugged my book on his Instagram account. So a lot of people follow him on Instagram. So when you were in these meetings, did you sense uh, a certain um, impatience from the president? Because he probably had a hundred things on his plate, and yet was he able to go deep on these issues? Did, did you get a sense that the meeting had to end in three minutes and so forth? What was it like? What was Here, the mood here's like? My, here's my, uh, my, impression, uh, my impressions. One, I take away, in all these pictures that I, I now have two of them up in my walls of my office at Brookings, I'm talking and the president is listening. 
So he is a listener, and he would listen and really drink in what the people were saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was a lot of listening. He is very soft-spoken. He doesn't yell. He doesn't mm -hmm. usually lose his temper. Mm -hmm. He gets impatient. If He can get impatient if someone's talking and they're not answering the question. They're not contributing. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, he'll cross-examine you. He'll ask questions. And uh, you know, occasionally if an idea is not good, he'll dismiss the idea. Um, he'll bring people in. I was there when he said, let's hear from so-and-so. Wow. And he'll bring somebody in if he feels that some side of the debate is not being represented. And I think he came to fundamentally good decisions uh, on things because of his careful, deliberative nature. Not perfect, but he really steered us through those financial, uh, particularly the financial crisis. It could have gone another way. We see that. I write in The Last Palace about the depression and the effects that it had. Uh, President Obama really steered us out of that, and I give him uh, some of the credit for the roaring economy that uh, that we have now with the low unemployment. And uh, were you, uh, whether it was Chief of Staff Rom, who is a totally different personality? Yes. How did that? Yes, he starts yelling before you even <laughs> even open your mouth. Uh, If the president is not around, uh, he could be. Even when the president was there, Rom could be rough on you. You know, I had a good relationship with him. He. He, he talks a very tough game, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he actually was a big supporter of many of the things I was trying to do on the ethics front of having very, very high standards and very tough compliance. Right. He that was I one of the first things you got signed, right? On yes, the first, the day, first day. You had like you really established some super <laughs> high standards, correct? It's one of the um, uh, one of the things that I'm very proud of. President Obama likes to joke about it. He revealed this in a speech right before he left office. He said, uh, I asked, I was the uh, special counsel, he says, I asked my special counsel, um, what, do we, what, do, what do we do? How do we accomplish no scandals? And I told the president, you're not going to like my advice. He says, well, what, did it, what is it? And I told him, if it's fun, you can't do it. That's <laughs> the number one rule. Now, I was line. joking was half tongue-in-cheek, but a lot of what passes for fun in Washington, D.C., is corruption. Why should I suddenly, I got to the White House, I'm getting all these invitations I never got before to go fancy places. Why should I get free tickets to sit in the front row of a, a Washington Wizards basketball game or a football game? It's not because of me, right? That's corrupt fun. Why should I get fancy gifts from lobbyists or very special meals? So all that kind of thing... We cut that off, and uh, as a result, there were uh, nobody uh, arrested, prosecuted, convicted, uh, uh, no talk of pardons. So we didn't mm -hmm. have to do any of that in the Obama White House. Very, very uh, ethical enterprise. The very first thing I heard in business law class at uh, McGill University many, many years ago, the very first thing the professor said would look at yourself in the mirror and if you have a question on whether something is legal or not. Mm. That's the first thing you want to do. Interesting. And you're conscious. Listen to your conscience. And does it feel right or does it feel <laughs> wrong? doesn't mean it's going to be the correct answer, but it's a good starting point. And like you said, you know, like, is it fun? It's a different, it's a similar type of answer. I, um, I uh, uh, said something very similar when I was training everybody on ethics in the White House, I would begin by saying, imagine 
that what you did is on the front page mm. of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Jewish Journal. Mm. How are you going to feel? Is it going to be okay or are you going to – that's the indication. If it doesn't feel right, come see me. You probably have a problem. Well, is there anything you read, you know, after you left the, the, the White House, the Obama administration, that was sort of ancillary, but there's so many criticisms that have come at the Obama administration, fast and furious, and weaponizing the IRS. I'm sure you've read so much of that. Is there anything there that kind of shook up some of your belief in the perfectly scandal-free administration? Because that's been taken on as a truth, right? Yes. It's been yes. challenged. I have this debate. I do think that the independent commentators uh, of all parties say that it was the most scandal-free. Um, I, I'm distinguishing between the White House, where I challenge you, okay. a single person, name, even in the fast, we're going to talk about Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the IRS. But that didn't touch the White House. Mm. Those were issues in the agencies. Gotcha. Fast and Furious um, uh, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, in my view, uh, was, all, like all of these, uh, was largely a bogus scandal. There what you had was, you know, for the most part, you had people down in the in the uh, lower levels of the government, uh, some of whom had come from previous administrations or were career people who made some bad policy decisions. You can't compare that to a Watergate or to what's going on now in the present-day White House, where the president himself is the subject of a criminal investigation because of something he did in the Oval Office. No, that's not the same at all, where the National Security Advisor lied in the White House and had to plead guilty. No, that is not the same at all, David. So I reject the people who say, uh, you know, that this was like other administrations. It was the most scandal-free uh, in modern American history, and the White House was completely scandal-free. Mm -hmm. Which one comes closest, do you think? I mean, there was so many episodes that I've read over the years, the the surveillance of uh, the reporters. It was, I think there was one from Fox. I'm, I'm sure you know about all yes, this stuff. Yes, yes. Is there one? James Risen. Exactly, James Risen. Well, it's, of course, uh, since I'm in a, a media enterprise. Uh, uh, you work at the Brookings. I do, I do, and I work on CNN. So now I'm in. Right, I write and you're all a commentator on CNN. I think the the two things uh, that um, uh, uh, you know that were the most troubling um, were w w the the handling of journalists. Now, there's legitimate law enforcement justification why you know a journalist there's there's lines that cannot be crossed. But I, I think that the, those – and the leakers, the leakers oh, who yeah. were prosecuted, um, you know, I, I would have done that differently. But um, a lot – and when I was there, I will tell you, some of these whistleblowers would call me up mm. uh, and I would uh, do my best to advocate for the whistleblowers within the system. But I think you've put your finger on one of the less – uh, perfect yeah. aspects of the Obama administration, but every administration of is going to have those kinds of uh, decisions. Uh, speaking of administrations, uh, I got to tell you, Norm, I have never seen the level of discourse in this country. Every time I think we hit a new low, we just keep hitting another low, and we're right in the middle of it at the Jewish Journal. 
and we're trying to sort of elevate the conversation. But it's, you know, in, in my last column, I called it like a UFC fight. It's like it's it's gotten so low, and you've been in that world for so many years. You live in D.C., and, you know, I try not to take sides because, you know, the editor, I, so I just sort of looked at it, and I said, oh, my God, they're like, <laughs> they want to crush each other. They're like out to win. You know, it's like winning has become the thing, and I don't care. I'm going to get Kavanaugh in there or hooker by crook, and I'm going to get him out by hooker by crook. Well, before there was any any hearings, they were calling him evil before anybody had ever heard of Christine Ford. Meanwhile, they allowed, you know, an amazing candidate, uh, Garland, you know, they, 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 they didn't even allow the hearings. So you get this sense of winning at all costs, and it's not that attractive. Um, it, it, it's a tough moment. One of the things that your listeners will find if they read The Last Palace is we've been through moments far, far worse than this, and we made it through. We'll make it through this one. Okay, well, that's encouraging. It's not um, uh, equal, however. It's asymmetrical. I do think uh, my uh, uh, friend and mentor, Norm Ornstein, has written a book with Tom Mann um, describing this asymmetry. There is more responsibility uh, on the uh, side of the Republicans, starting with Trump challenging uh, whether Obama was even an American citizen, as you say, blocking Merrick Garland. Um, and the uh, shameful uh, behavior. Mitch McConnell, when they asked him when Obama was elected, what's your goal? You thought, say, I'm going to help the American people. I'm going to cooperate to make sure Obama does not get reelected. That kind of partisanship. And if you look at the Kavanaugh process, it was totally broken. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of pages of the guy's documents that were never turned over. I, when I was in the White House, I worked on the Kagan and Sotomayor mm -hmm. nominations. We turned over every page of Kagan's White House documents, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of Kavanaugh pages withheld. And the situation just deteriorated. That was a broken process culminating with the phony FBI investigation. They didn't mm -hmm. do a real FBI investigation of mm -hmm. these claims. Now, am I saying that the other side is perfect? No. Of course, there's things that have been done on the Democratic side that led to an erosion. And of course, I don't approve of, uh, uh, of everything. And I, you know, I think, for example, there's plenty of too much dark money, bad campaign money. We don't know where it's coming from on both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could say a lot more about the uh, corruption, the lobbyists uh, in my own party. They hate me because I tried to, they have too much power in the Democratic Party. And I try to block them and fight them. And uh, there's some members of Congress. When I go to Congress, Democrats who stand up and say, you said I was corrupt. So I've been very outspoken on my own party, but it was asymmetrical. That's what Ornstein and Mann have established in their scholarship. Much worse. And we, what we have to do now is we have to find a way to get to some justice, some accountability. And I think most Americans want that. I don't think Americans really want to be as separated as they are. Right. And but uh, so I think we're going to get I think we're going to get to a good place. Does justice and accountability include uh, moves to impeach Kavanaugh? Well, it's premature to talk about impeaching that. Kavanaugh. I, I wouldn't 
ever if, use the I word with Kavanaugh. We, we need it's to been, look at it's this. It's been put out there. We need to look at the broken process. Right, and Cory Booker said it's. You got to be very careful with. You got to be very careful with talking about impeachment mm-hmm. because. You know, it, it, it leads to uh, the coarsening of the discourse. Are we going to impeach every? Correct. But I'm not But I'm not saying what happened with Kavanaugh was right. I'm saying mm-hmm. go slow. We need to look at how did the FBI do such a broken, mm-hmm. phony investigation? What's in those documents? Why weren't the documents? Right. And why Diane Feinstein held it for over? six weeks? Well, Diane, I'm going to defend Senator uh, Feinstein. Um she was told by Christine Ford, I don't want my name out there. Mm-hmm. So she was respecting the victim. Mm-hmm. The woman had already been assaulted. I believe her. I believe she was assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh. So Diane Feinstein was just uh, protecting her. Now, somebody leaked Dr. Ford's name. That did not respect Dr. Ford's wish to remain private. So that, I don't know who did that. And it that. was conveniently leaked after the hearings were done as a late hit on well, Kavanaugh. So there's really two sides to the story. That was the, the better, the, but the, the better process would have been not to leak it, to let Dr. Ford make that choice. Right. And I think the better process would have been to bring it to the uh, committee as soon as you have it. And it's private and you're respecting thing. And you say, here's an issue that we should. But David, what if the yeah. person has said, as Dr. Ford did, I don't want others to know about this. I'm telling you, I don't want my name out there. As soon as Diane Feinstein brought that to the committee, you know how leaky Congress yeah. is. That name was going to be out there. Right. Well, so it, you have to respect out. the wishes of the victim. It did come out in the end, and you know, yeah. and it was it was a little bit of a mess. Is there anybody you read that's on the other side of your point of view oh, yes. that you have respect for? Oh, like, yes. Give me an example of somebody that you might uh, read. Like Victor Kavanaugh. Davis Hanson? On Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. I read the conservative. There's a very good, smart uh, conservative, David French. Oh, uh, my God. You just, you just put your finger on a name, Norm. I, I just love this writer. And I don't agree with anything he says, yeah, David, but, but, but he's a, a smart writer. He's trying. There's a decency to his style of writing that I, uh, that I really sort of but respect. The, tr- the truth is because of the asymmetry that I describe, um, many of the people who I would have formerly put in this category, Jennifer Rubin, the Washington Post columnist, Bill Kristol. Well, they uh, became never Trumpers. Uh, but there are people right, with whom I have very profound disagreements. Max Boot, my friend Max, who right, has but a they new all book became out. never Trumpers because of this asymmetry. Right. Because there is something fundamentally wrong. Look, I I am not a reflexive anti-Trump person. I worked on the Trump transition. I offered to help when Politico got a hold of that in Washington. It was a big story. Uh-huh. I said I'm an American. I said right. publicly, give the guy a chance. Maybe so did the, he won't so be. So did President Obama. Yes, maybe he won't be as bad as it seems. I endorsed many of his nominees, including Justice Gorsuch. So, mm-hmm. you know, opposing Kavanaugh was not a, a, a reflexive thing mm-hmm. with me. I am not an automatic uh, opponent, but the president's behavior has been so aberrational, so contrary to everything that's, that our democracy stands for, that our values stand for, our Jewish values stand for. Despite his strong support for Israel, uh, 
uh, I think that, uh, uh, you know, we cannot uh, countenance what he's doing. We have an obligation to speak out against Does it. his personal uh, behavior, his personal flaws, his character flaws, has it contaminated the whole conservative idea? Because when you read people like David French, and they really give you like sort of a, a, a decent and dignified view of the conservative mindset and sort of view. And do you think Trump's personal flaws have contaminated <laughs> conservative? Well, they've contaminated the Republican Party. Mm. Uh, it's a shame to see people who resisted him. You know, privately, they all say the guy's a maniac. They won't <laughs> say it publicly. Um, but it's the conservative movement because, you know, one of the things I try to do is I... But not conservative ideas. You want okay. to distinguish. Bill Crystal, Jen Rubin, and Max Boot are still very... Cons they haven't changed their conservatism. Brett Stevens. Brett Stevens, even Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss have said, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. you know, it, it's too much. Those people haven't changed their conservative orientation. What's changed is Trump and the people around him and the party structures, the party apparatus. Mm -hmm, That's correct. different than the ideas. Yeah, it really is. It really is. What complicates the picture is when somebody who's got horrible character flaws ends up stumbling into a good idea or, or does something that you think might well, be good. And then you get this cognitive dissonance, for example, where so many Jews who are on a Democrat side, Jewish Democrats, liberal Jews, strong, pro, strongly pro-Israel, uh, who've been wishing for a president to move the embassy to Jerusalem, and it finally happens, and there's a cognitive dissonance. So it's hard to give credit to somebody you have contempt for. Uh, it is. I think we have to. How did you feel about that move, I, the embassy? I, I, I think we, I think we have to acknowledge when the president does things that we agree with or does good things uh, that they are good things. Um, the, my difficulty with the embassy move uh, was that uh, it, it, it's it's a very uh, provocative act. I personally, as a Jew. Um, uh, feel that im eshkachech Yerushalayim tishkach yamini. If I forget, forget Jerusalem, I, uh, let, let, tongue, let me forget my, my right hand. My right hand, right. Uh, so, um, uh, and I, one of, I attended the State of the Union uh, as the guest of a Democratic member of Congress, and one of the few times I stood for the president's remarks uh, was when he made his comments on Yerushalayim. I lived in Yerushalayim. It's very dear to me. But I got to ask myself, like with uh, his uh, treatment of the Palestinians, is this really going to hasten the safety and security of Israel? If I believed that it was, then I would be open to it. But I'm concerned that he's undermining that. What, what's going to happen when the backlash comes? Um, and so uh, I, I think these—he's uh, he, broken in too many ways with the Republican and Democratic policies. These are po efforts that have been going on for decades by both parties. Let me give you another example. Trade. I, I think the president got some slight improvements to NAFTA that were needed. Good for him, okay? Um, he— uh, uh, we need to say, yeah, that's, you know, he, he made that better. The problem is it comes at the cost of the destruction, the erosion, the attacks on larger American institutions by him every day. So um, 
uh, I think we have to, even to those of your listeners who uh, don't question the Jerusalem move or the peace moves like I do, you have to ask yourself, at what price, at what price do we have Trump? And I fear it's going to be, the backlash is going to be very negative uh, on these Israel issues. The sense of he's making it partisan, David. Yeah. He's made it into a Republican versus for the first time in my life. He's made it into Republican versus Democrat. That's dangerous. We need bipartisan support time, for Israel. Big time. I think the sense among a lot of pro-Trump uh, readers of the Jewish Journal and just among the general pro-Trump, you know, in America, Jews is the sense that. Um, the peace process has been such a resounding failure. It's true. With all the positive attempts, all the other things have been tried, and like you might, might as well try something new. But which is leads me to my next question: With all your connections, Norm, can you give us a scoop? This incredibly mysterious, mythical peace plan. And yesterday, Pompeo said we're going to be blown away <laughs> by this new peace plan. And and I'm thinking, what the hell do you have? In this mysterious peace plan. So please tell us. I think the contents of the peace plan are just like the contents of the folders. Remember the president had his big press conference. He says, I'm signing all these papers. He had piles of folders that he's, you know, turning over uh, some control of the business to his sons. I think those folders were full of empty paper. <laughs> and I think he just got a couple of those empty sheets, and that's what he calls his peace plan. I don't believe there is a peace plan. Now, I'll tell you one aspect of it. Surely they want to get Saudi support mm. for whatever it is they're doing. Mm -hmm. The problem is you got to be careful. They're so foolish. They're so naive there. They're embracing the Saudis. Uh, and then you get the uh, killing, alleged apparent killing of the Washington Post journalist mm -hmm. in the Saudi embassy mm -hmm. in Turkey. So uh, uh, you got to be very careful who you um, who you partner up with. And I, I think it's uh, not. I fear it's they're not in the, what they're doing is not in the interest, the safety and security of the state of Israel. Well, I, I, I definitely do know that Jason Greenblatt has really put in a legitimate effort. You know, I know that. I know him. Goes to shul with me. Oh, he does? He sits two rows away oh from me God. when he's in Washington for and I'm Shabbat. Sure, his lips are sealed. Totally sealed. <laughs> Other than the, this, as, this is the only information on the peace plan that I have from him. Good Shabbos. That's it. <laughs> That's all he says. Good Shabbos. I say good Shabbos to him. I think he's aware that I may not be the uh, number one fan of his boss. Well, you know, uh, I had a, another interesting meeting this week uh, with a group that's been pushing a, a new initiative called the New State Solution mm. where that starts with Gaza, like sort of mm. Gaza first. And I'll send you, I'll, I'll email Who's you what I have group? on it. It's a, a general, uh, a uh, uh, Anthony, some people that used to be in the Israeli army and activists, and apparently they're getting a lot of support within Israel. And I'll send you what I have on it because I think I might write my next column on it. The reason being is it's the first new idea genuinely new idea. Mm -hmm. Start mm -hmm. with Gaza, build a Palestinian state there, and c expand by to Egypt, to the Sinai. Good, nice, big. So, and, and there's, w what I kind of liked about it is that I could see it starting right away. There's yeah. a humanitarian component. Yeah. Where, uh, because there are no more Jewish settlement. There's no, no. more Jews in Gaza. So at least I feel, whereas <laughs> it, the Judean Samaria in the West Bank, it's so complicated. 
there are so many cantons, there's so many complications, yeah. and this idea of a demilitarized, and, and every time you hear Israel talk about how we need to control the security, we need this and we need that, and you get a sense that the most Israel can give is a lot less than the, than the least that they can accept, as, as I'm sure you've heard that line before. Yes, I don't agree. Okay. I will tell you that like uh, the way all the Republicans in Congress uh, roll their eyes at Trump privately. Uh, I worked as ambassador. The Czechs were important uh, interlocutors. And we did a part of the peace plan, uh, the economic part of the peace plan. We had a conference in Prague. I went to Ramallah several times, mm -hmm. to Israel a bunch of times. Say, hey, if you two can make peace, there'll be a big economic dividend. And we, we were setting that up. The, it was the Kerry plan that ultimately failed. Correct. Uh, the, Why um, did it fail? My Brookings colleague, Martin Indyk, was managing it. Oh, yes, I remember. Uh, managing it. Why uh, did it fail? Carrie, and he's, Martin is incredibly competent. It failed because the parties were not willing, for political reasons, to say publicly what everybody says privately, which is look, here's what the uh, final uh, status uh, looks like. Here's what the borders look like. There's going to be some land swaps over here. It's going to be land swaps over here. Everybody knows these heavy Jewish settlements are going to be turned back over. Correct. So there's kind of a more or less a consensus and of what the Omer, map looks like. Omer took it as far, right? He as, did. As, Omer as took it seen. far. You know, frankly, there was a very good deal on the table mm -hmm. when Arafat and Barack met with Clinton. Arafat should have taken that deal. Oh, my okay. God. You, Anyhow, you, everybody knows what all of these terms look like. Mm -hmm. But politically, you want to know why it failed, David? Mm -hmm. And it broke my heart. Including it broke a lot of our hearts. It broke my heart. Uh, um, both as a sense of justice for both of these people. But as a Jew and as a Zionist, I wanted the security that came with the lasting, permanent, stable, final peace between Israel and Palestine. Um, because politically, the parties couldn't say publicly to their bases, to their constituencies, what everybody acknowledged privately. There was no political infrastructure that was built. If anything, the politics moved further away. It's like uh, if you see a man who's got one foot on a, the boat and one foot on the dock, and suddenly the boat starts to move out to, into the water, right? It was getting further and further apart. And ultimately, the peace process uh, fell in the uh, ocean. Now, you used the term asymmetrical earlier when you quoted Norm Orstein's book in the situation, political yes. situation in America. Norm the Elder, as he's the called elder. in Washington. Exactly. I'm Norm the Younger. He's yeah. Norm the... Or they call us the ethical norms. Ethical norms. We need that right now. <laughs> we need to bring back ethical norms to America. Uh, but do you also see the situation, the reason the peace has failed as symmetrical or asymmetrical? Does one side, in your view, deserve more blame? Uh, I can't answer that question because I'm I mean, you did when it came to Republicans and Democrats. I know, but I'm too close to Israel, and I feel too much of a sense, unlike with the Republicans and Democrats, America's healthy, it's strong, it's large, it's going to survive, it's going to make it through this moment. I feel a great sense uh, as a liberal Zionist of the perils facing Israel. So I can't honestly uh, judge. It's like you're asking me, this is a small country. It's full of my cousins. You know, it's like you're asking me about a family member. Uh, of course I'm going to say 
Uh, you, you know, I'm going to take one side. By the way, I'll tell you something very interesting in my dealing with the Palestinians. I had hundreds of them in operating as this kind of middleman in Prague. Um, I had hundreds of them who passed through. I often had them in my house. I had them for kosher meals. It was a kosher house. Sometimes they would come to Shabbat dinner. Uh, and uh, I did not pretend. I wish I knew you then because I would have gotten the call. Yeah, you could have gotten the uh, Jewish You could have also gotten a free meal. <laughs> you could have gotten a free dinner. I, know, I was in Prague. <laughs> Which Annie? Remember Prague? <laughs> Um, I would have put uh, uh, the Suisses up at the uh, at the residence at the last palace. You could have yep. seen the swastika for yourself. Oh, I, w- I wanted the room without the swastika. Was uh, there like one my like mother, that? My mother, my mother, <laughs> is that what she asked? Way. It's hard to find. Yes, um, the um, uh, I was honest with the Palestinians. I would say to them, "Look, I'm coming to this." As a liberal Zionist, as a liberal Zionist, I want to see a two-state solution. But I'm a Zionist. I don't want to pretend that I'm anything beside that. I'm going to be honest with you about my biases and my blind spots. And they appreciated that. And they understood that. And one of them once told me, I like you better than the Americans who pretend. Oh, good for you. Right? I didn't pretend, good but I you. genuinely wanted, above all for the sake of fairness, that's the liberal part, but also for the safety and security of my Jewish brothers and sisters and cousins and mishpacha, my I family in Israel. I wanted them to be safe. It was not meant to be, but you know what? Amir Tzashem, God willing, it will still happen. Yeah, one of the most complicating things I've ever heard about the conflict, I was in Ramallah talking to a, a BMW dealer, and he said to me, you know, if Israel ever leaves— the IDF ever leaves, you know, I'm afraid that all these terrorist groups can come in and just slaughter us. It was like it's a, it just shook me up a little bit because in a way that part of the world is so complicated that with this dream of two states in the abstract, it feels fantastic. But then it's so complicated, it's so unstable, there's so much violence. Can it be protected to be demilitarized, to be protected from these terrorist forces? If the two-state ever happens. That was the job of the current president of Brookings, General John Allen. Correct. John Allen spent a lot of time. To figure out. He spent a lot of time. There were security arrangements. It's another one of these things. It's like the borders and the land swaps. Everybody knows what it looks like. So did, I think there did are you see adequate what, uh, security, General Allen? security did you see, uh, arrangements. Did you see what he did? Without getting into uh, the classified detail. information, I'm aware of the structures uh, that were going to be set up. And, and if you can tell us whether, in your view, they felt really, like, genuine, like, in, in terms of Better workable, than my workable. view. Better than my view. The Israeli security professionals mm. uh, were able to accept the concept, at least some wow. of the Israeli security establishment, some of the retired officers are able were able to accept the fundamental concept. You know, the devil is in the details. The United States would have needed to act as a guarantor. I don't want to give away sure. uh, things I shouldn't talk about, uh, even on uh, the David Suisse podcast. Uh, but I think that that was not, ultimately, that was not the sticking point. Uh, it was the political dimensions on both sides. Correct. And, well, God uh, willing, know, something let us hope. Yes. Let us hope and pray. We and need hope. Where would we be? That's the lesson of my book, David. That's we the lesson hope. of The Last Palace. Read it. It will give you hope because you'll see that in all of these crises of the past hundred years, 
sooner or later, democracy triumphs. I'm convinced that hope is the oxygen of the Jews, that we, we can't live without it. Uh, having no hope is, there's no reason to wake up in the morning. We need hope. And I think this has been something that has been pushing us for centuries, is this idea. And I think America has been the country uh, that has given us the most hope. And I think that's p part of what we bring to the Jewish picture. That's why a lot of times you'll see cynicism among the Jews of Israel and the American Jews come in. We have this sense of hope. And I think yes. we need both. But it conflicts we with another. Both. It conflicts with another Jewish, we do need it. You, the Jewish optimism, the Jewish hope, it's, a, it's the fundamental part of our traditional uh, culture. We're hoping for, for the advent of uh, Mashiach. Uh, we're hoping for a better world. Uh, we're hoping for that our sins will be forgiven uh, and the Yom Emnerayim on the high holidays. But it is in conflict. I think it's a toolkit of survival that the Jews have. Hope is one tool in the mm -hmm. kit, but another mm -hmm. one is kvetching. Because right. it's the Jewish anxiety that allows us to analyze the threats and respond to them. I think of the, I always think of the joke about the, the bubby, the grandmother who's walking by the ocean with her little grandson, and a wave, gigantic wave, comes in and sweeps the boy out to the ocean, wearing his little sailor suit, with a little light hat. He vanishes, and she falls to her knees. She says, "Please, Hashem, please send back." Little Chaim Yonkel, send my little grandson back. And Hashem listens. The wave rolls back, deposits the boy. He's standing. He's a little rumpled. The, the hat is missing. But he's standing right before her. She says, "No, Hashem, so where's the hat? <laughs> so, you know, that's, a, that's an aspect of the Jewish character. Too. Yeah, I, I mean, there's also a superstitious thing, I think, with, with uh, so many of the Jews, and especially with my mother who grew up in Morocco, fetching sort of takes away the evil eye. Yes, Kanei Nahara, we say. The, uh, right, and, but deep down, uh, we live for hope. So on, on that positive note, I want to remind all the listeners that at the Wizen Center of the AJU, our guest today, Norman Eisen, will be in conversation with his good friend, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, on his new book called The Last Palace. So thank you so much, Norman. It was really delightful to, uh, to have you over for stimulating conversation. David, it was wonderful. I forgot that we were doing a podcast, and I actually uh, uh, love the conversation. I, I hope you'll have me back. It would be my pleasure. Thank you.